0: let Welcome to Speak with Eve. I'm your host, Eve Eurydice. Today's guest is Matt Taibbi. Uh, Matt is an author, journalist, podcaster. He's a fellow Bardian. He is uh, uh, well known for reporting on finance, media, politics. He's a contributing editor to Rolling Stone, and he has a very successful newsletter on Substack. Uh, His best known books, uh, out of half a dozen, are Griftopia, which is how I first read your work, about the financial crisis of 2008. With 2008 which is still very appropriate I think that book you know was prophetic (laughs) Um, and then you wrote about uh, the campaign trail insane clown president you wrote the book hate inc about how the media conglomerates are kind of like feeding the division amongst us because it you know it uh, it uh, bulges their profits I guess and so they're encouraging our inherent bias as journalists. Um, a very interesting book about the current moment. So uh I wanna ask you today, Matt, about something that's a lot in the Zeitgeist, which is the decline and the breakup of the American Empire, right? So there was actually Queenie Ag, uh, poll today that came out today that 66% of Americans believe that American democracy is at risk. And I think that probably hasn't happened, uh, you know, since at least like uh, these polls (laughs) began, you know, coming out um so and I think that it's because people have lost trust in in authority in institutions right in truth tellers we have like sc- scandal mongering and war mongering um instead of actual uh, politics and and it seems that even with a democratic president supported by the progressive wing, you know we're still in that place of um of uh, like the game of musical chairs between the two mainstream political parties right where they're fighting over who takes over the the silent majority of like the working class and the immigrant class and whatever is left uh, of the middle class so before i I pass the microphone to you i want to read a couple of your quotes because i think they speak to this beautifully so this is conspiracy theorists of the world believers in the hidden hands of the rothschilds and the masons and the illuminati we skeptics owe you an apology you were right the players may be a little different but your basic premise is correct the world is a rigged game Uh, another quote in a society governed passively by free markets and free elections organized greed always defeats disorganized democracy so clearly you know it's like a decade plus from occupy wall street and uh, and and the dif- you know i think that uh, the the difference between the you know the income gap let's say between the 1% and the 99% has only worsened um the the debt of the us household is households is up to like 16 trillion which is greater than the trade deficit and i think that's how we're all beholden to this system that's like a a winner takes all right system that's focused on making sure that the vast wealth is in the hands of this tiny minority and i don't think it matters who the minority is right like that's the brilliance of america that unlike the old world it, the people can change it just doesn't mm-hmm. matter so long as the minority is is sustained um and it's like the theater of politics the theater of war again doesn't matter it's all destructions it's like the the superstructure right you know politics and and, and cultural wars and, and, and real wars and all of that is just the superstructure and the substructure, which is, you know, who controls the means of production, let's say, you know, stays the same. So, yeah, wh- what do you think about th- in that context, about the moment we're living in now, and what do you think is the future of America?
1: Well, that, that's a very difficult question. Um... I think I will start by saying that I had a very unusual window onto this question because um, I I covered presidential elections beginning in 2004. So I had the experience uh, for five consecutive presidential election cycles of going around the country, talking to people and um, observing the phenomenon that now everybody talks about, which is this sort of snowballing distrust in institutions, uh, which you could see uh, very clearly on both sides of the aisle, beginning, I would say, in, in the early Obama years, but even maybe before that a little bit. Um, there there were there was a great deal of animosity and distrust uh, among ordinary voters towards institutions that previously had always um, won implicit uh, trust from voters, uh, in- including the news media, which had a great fall after the WMD episode. Um, after 2008, there was considerable backlash and outrage toward both the news media, which missed the crash and misdiagnosed it. And then not only, not only that got it wrong afterwards as well. Um, but also towards the people who were running the economy, there was suddenly a lot of awareness about institutions like the Federal Reserve, which previously Americans didn't really think about all that much, but now suddenly they did. Uh, so on the one hand, there was, there was a great deal of this animus that was building in the population towards previously revered institutional structures. And you could see this coming from a mile away, long before Donald Trump. I wrote about this in a book uh, 10 years ago, in, in a book called The Great Derangement. Um, and, I, and I sort of predicted that there would be a problem in the future where people would stop believing the information that they were told um, so that's happening and I think that was a, an enormous contributing factor to Donald Trump winning because Trump is a clever politician and he picked up early on the fact that institutions like the Fed and NATO uh, and the Pentagon um, were all very unpopular and he just said negative things about them and won, won lots of vote, votes doing so. So that's happening there's there's a real and I think deserved mistrust of these institutions on the one hand on the other hand there's an additional problem of this uh, phenomenon being hyped to the, to the max this idea of democracy in crisis has been appropriated uh, more on the democratic side than the republican side but if you look everywhere you see it you know from the Washington Post Calling itself "Democracy Dies in Darkness" to the constant refrains about attacks on our democracy that you see from politicians, this is heightened anxiety among uh, the upper classes uh, in ways that didn't exist before. So, I think it's both a real problem and and also an exaggerated problem at the same time. Because if you've lived in another country and you have experience living in places where they have far more serious problems than you do, you would know that America, relatively speaking, is in pretty good shape. Um, but there's a perception here that things are falling apart at the seams, and um, and politically that may be true. It's just, I think, I, I, I wonder how real it is compared to how, how the perception sometimes.
0: Yeah, well tonight Biden is going to speak, you know, in Philadelphia about the soul of the nation, which is the democracy at risk. So yeah, of course they capitalize. It's but but it's the same on both sides. It's that 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 mirror effect, you know, because Trump was very much an opportunist, and what helped him is that he, you know, he didn't have any actual beliefs of his own. So it was easy for him to like take in whatever he was picking up ar- around him that other people weren't saying. And I think that Biden is trying to do that as much as possible, right? But, but the, the point is, you know, I mean, Bernie, I mean, I, I, yes, he had a heart attack, <laughs> but basically, you know, Bernie has, in a sense, given up and is gone, you know, with sided with the Democrats. Um. And we're watching in real time, you know, Fox and and you know people like Tucker Carlson, kind of like, you know pull pull pull! The, the, the you know what's left of the democratic constituency their way right you know by speaking the populist language very very clearly you know almost like in marxist terms but they they're not marxists because you know they're capitalists of course. Yeah. right <laughs> um but I, I i mean i wonder if you look like 30 years into the future or 50 no 30 30 years into the future what are the Republicans going to do with those people? I mean, Trump did nothing, but other than like printing Trump dollars, he got saved by the pandemic, basically, right? So, um, but it's, it's not like the 1% is going to let anybody do anything. So, so at some point, all of these, you know, growing numbers of disadvantaged people, you know, who now are looking for salvation either in, either extreme extreme places in the parties right or um or in crypto or all kinds of other like hacks you know uh, meta (laughs) but at, at some point there has to be a moment when they all figure out that things are getting worse um and there is no way out. And we do have, we are awash in guns. And so we do have something that these other countries where things are tough don't have, which is, you know, this tradition of like taking to the streets and, 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 and the means to do so. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it is it possible that, that this will just go on indefinitely? Um, and nothing mm. nothing will happen the people will not take it to the streets uh, and i guess like a related question i'm sorry to interrupt a related question in my mind is like what happened to occupy wall street what happened to black lives matter like why do these movements you know peter out so quickly
1: well uh, with respo- with regard to the first question I would say, no, of course, this can't go on indefinitely. Uh, the frustrations are too serious. Moreover, the the political divisions uh, up on high uh, are too pronounced now. If, if the Democrats were to do something like try to indict Donald Trump and prevent him from running for, for the presidency, uh, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where there wouldn't be some kind of... Very serious upheaval uh, that resulted from that. Uh, as you mentioned, this is a heavily armed country, where we, you know m- more so than almost any other place in the world. I have a friend who used to be a, a correspondent in the former Yugoslavia, and he speaks often of the phenomenon of uh, a, a heavily armed population that is watching media uh, that is uh, designed to make people angry with other groups. Um, And we know how that turned out uh, there. And that could easily happen in the United States. We, We, you know, we have more guns in this country and some kind of balkanization scenario is I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility at all. Um, which would be, you know, very sad.'ve we've, we've been through a lot in this country uh, and avoided that so far, but, um, it does feel like we're we're headed towards some kind of impasse. and I, I don't know, I don't know how we'll come out on the other side of it. I, I hope that won't be true. I mean, I I, I I do believe that ultimately this is a we're a resourceful country and we, t- we tend to avoid disaster at the last minute. Um, but who knows as for those movements, I think those are two completely different stories, Occupy Wall Street, which I was part of, um, I, I think it actually, I do think it accomplished something that was very important. Uh, even though it fell far short of whatever, uh, its goals were from minute to minute, it, it accomplished one thing that was concrete, uh, and will last for us, uh, with us for, a long time, which was defining the population not in terms of left or right and blue or red, but in terms of the 1% and the 99%, which I think is a, a much more accurate way of looking at American politics than anything that had come along previously. And, and that, that way of thinking is in everybody's lexicon now, and everybody understands it. More to the point, I think it's become more and more pertinent uh, as time has passed. The post-2008 economy, as you mentioned, the the income gap has widened Um, as we've become progressively more and more dependent upon central bank spending. We've seen this effect where this enormous amount of uh, public largesse gets dumped into the economy and the people who are most skilled uh, at investing you know, on the riskier end of the yield curve, tend to uh, end up with most of the money. And the philosophy of it trickling down to the bottom hasn't really come to pass. So the more we spend, and we spent a ton during the pandemic relief uh, period, remember, the the Fed added $4.6 trillion to its balance sheet, and where did that money go? Well, most of it went to the very, very wealthy in this country, wrapping their heads around the complex financial concepts involved. Um, Black Lives Matter is at least brutality. I wrote two books about that. Um, I do think they've, they've accomplished some things. Uh, there have been a number of measures. A stop and frisk is, uh, is essentially been stopped in a lot of cities. Uh, the number of contacts between police and the population is, is decreased in some places. There have been new laws about body cams, about eliminating, uh, this sort of b- bizarre privacy exemptions that police once had. Um, but the rest of the movement receiving an enormous amount of corporate money, which in my mind perverted their mission a little bit and, and, and directed them more towards the workplace, uh, towards, uh, diversity and equity training, as opposed to con- campaigning for hardcore reforms of police and, and other matters like that, um, it's become a social phenomenon uh, for profit, and I I worry about that. I I don't think that's been a positive, um, or wholly a positive, anyway.
0: Again, you know, I think it's fitting the division that we were talking about, and I think it's something that has been taken advantage of. Um, you know, as as pretty much everything else that we've organized for can be taken advantage of by this, like you know, uh, really kind of like anonymous, right? One percent or zero point one percent, or you know, whatever that is, and and again, personalizing those people, I think, is our mistake. You know, the system doesn't care if the 1% or the 0.1% is all people of color or all people of, uh, you know, trans identity or it doesn't ma- they, it, The system doesn't care about the, right. right? The personal identity stuff at all. What matters is the, the setup, the structure, the extreme, like narrow hierarchy, right? B- with the assumption that when you get to that amount of wealth, you become that kind of person you know it doesn't matter who it is you 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 know the the greed let's say you know or wealth corrupts i mean and and that's very simplistic <laughs> but
1: yeah no, and and that, and that's been a big source of frustration for for me personally having spent a lot of time on both of those issues in the last 10 years or so i th- i think people are very easily fooled by appearances you know if they if they see that a number, a a corporate boardroom suddenly looks more diverse. They, they believe that the problem has been solved somehow, that somehow we were fixing racial inequity issues. Um, Actually, you know, really what they've done is they've cosmetically changed a few things within a company. And most of the, of the persistent problems about poverty, um, you know, the income gap, Loss of opportunity, loss of infrastructure spending, all those things, you know, are either staying in place or getting worse. So, yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's, that's been a frustration.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like, that's why that quote, when you talk about the system being rigged period you know i think is so powerful you know it's like now we see it with uh you know green energy and climate change and it's like who's gonna profit from all the, like you know the electrical batteries or the solar energy infrastructure or whatever it's the exact same setup it doesn't matter whether we're dealing with fossil fuel or with another source of of, of energy in the end right so
1: right yeah and it's- <laughs> Yeah, and, and just, just 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, interrupt again, but just quickly, I think this was one of the big takeaways from 2008 for most people. I mean, most people that I interview on the campaign trail before 2008, they didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about the macro economy or about any of those institutions, but for a variety of reasons, they were forced to after 2008, and and one of the main takeaways they got. Was that the government spent an enormous amount of money, you know, far more than eight hundred million dollars or a hundred billion dollars? It was in the trillions, if you include Fed lending. And really, what they what they did is they spent a lot of money to to make whole the same bad actors who caused the financial crisis uh and then those people walked away with their bonuses intact and you know their beach houses intact and they got to keep everything and in many cases profited and made more on stock buybacks the next year whereas the ordinary person got foreclosed upon and saw their their retirement fund lose 30 or 40% of its its value and so even people who don't read the news and vote for Trump you know, when I talk to those people, they come away with this thing like, you know, those people only help themselves; they don't help me, so I'm going to help myself, or I'm going to send them a message. And I think they think that about almost any government program now, or or, or any elite program.
0: Right, and and by they, I would like to say we.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I mean, and um. Yeah, I think that you you're right. I haven't thought of it exactly, you know, as precisely, but I I do agree that something monumental happened in two thousand eight of the size of like the, the, the September eleven, you know, in the sense of like consciousness changing, you know, it was equally consciousness changing because um you know we as 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 an as America as an economy spent so much to keep the system in place uh no matter what right and then from then on we learned about printing money every time there was an election the fed kept printing money and that's how elections were won you know the democrats completely sold out if the you know if there was anything left over from the democratic promises that had been you know broken by clinton <laughs> uh you know it was finished then and there right um, I actually voted for Romney. I just felt so extremely betrayed because we had uh, attached so much hope to the, you know, Obama, to the symbolic Ob- Obama victory. Uh, and this happened right, you know, like the, his reaction happened right after. And it d- didn't really uh, differ from what one would have expected from, you know, his opponents. Um so it, it became clear that this, this it was, it of, was worse,
1: than, worse than that. It right. was exactly the same policy. Like right. they, they literally continued exactly right. the bailout policy. Right.
0: So. And that's when I thought consciously, I, I, you know, I, I was like, you know, I'm no longer falling for this uh, lesser of two evils. I'm not doing it anymore. I don't care how horrific the other side is and I'm just not doing it anymore because it's emotional blackmail and uh, mm-hmm. I have to learn my lesson, right, at some point. Um, and, and yes, uh, I think soon after, 2010, we have Citizens United, right? Corporations mm-hmm. are people. So it has kind of entrenched this plutocracy uh, as the American system of, of 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 you know governance and and that's about it. I think that there is no doubt about it. So what's been happening since may be explained as more and more people, in different ways, learning this huge lesson, right? And if there is in fact now going to be tightening of the economy and. And then we, we see from the way crypto is reacting that that was false promise too. So, you know, that was another like griftopia (laughs) to quote Mm -hmm. you, right? Just like uh, pretty much everything that has to do with Trump is turning out to be griftopia, including like these documents under his passports in the, Mm. in the drawer. I mean,
1: (laughs) right, right.
0: (laughs) So yeah, we're all slowly like kind of like learning this extremely painful lesson. That we have nowhere to turn to. And, and that's where my question comes in, you know, like, where do we go when enough of us, you know, and, 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 and ironically, what ha- keeps saving America, I think, is the Im- immigration. You know, I, I mean, I know it as an, as an immigrant who came here for freedom. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I know very much how real that is, you know, this sense that you have coming from the old world where you feel watched and, and where there's so many like, you know, boundaries of, a, of, of, of behavior and speech, right, um, and identity, to just come here and experience the freedom in the superstructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's amazing, right? And it's very enticing. But at some point, when all of this ends, you know, uh, or when, you know, when like more and more people understand what's happening, uh And America, meanwhile, is globalized. You know, everybody's an American in a sense now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if there is like a balkanization of America, there is a balkanization of the world, no?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Um, Also, I I think polls will back up what you're saying, that the people who are most patriotic in America tend to be the very recent immigrants, uh, you know, the groups that are doing the best in America tend to be very recent immigrants. So, you know, West Africans, South Asians, you know, they're, they're really flourishing in, in the United States or they were until very recently. Um, and they're our best advocates, uh, around the world. The problem really is with people who grew up here, who grew up and have memories of another time when things were different and, uh, those voters tend to be profoundly pessimistic uh there was a book by um a really interesting book by a former CIA analyst called um uh, the revolt of the public by uh, a writer named Martin Gurry uh and his thesis was that in the internet age uh, ordinary people had so much access to information about their leaders and about the institutions that controlled them, that they lost their ability to be mesmerized and to believe in the infallibility of their leaders and their, the leadership structures, and they began to see all the warts that had been there all along, but now they are much more visible. And I think I think that's very very true now. People um, people are able to see through. Uh, the system a lot more easily than they used to. And then when you add a compounding factor like uh, something on the scale of the Iraq invasion uh, collapsing and turning into the disaster that it did after uh, commensurate failure by the media to report the matter correctly, um, I thought that was devastating to the Pentagon, to the news media, to the White House. Uh, then you add, again, the, the 2008 financial crisis, which showed that the financial regulatory system didn't work. We had a myth about self-regulation within the financial services community. We have been assured over and over and over again that these big banks were on top of every conceivable market movement and that they would never allow us to go down this a path of, Let's just say a giant Ponzi scheme like the housing market, um, and they all completely failed in that endeavor, and, and many of them turned out to be the biggest losers in the whole affair. Uh, you add the politicians who didn't know what to do, who who it turned out didn't even know what a mortgage-backed security was. Um, I cover I covered those people. There were maybe two members of the Senate. Uh, during the 2008 crisis, who could speak intelligibly about the causes of the crash, which was a huge shock to Americans, right? So they're turning on their televisions and they're seeing that their leaders literally don't know what they're talking about in the middle of a crisis. So all these things were really demystifying. And so when Don- somebody like Donald Trump comes along and says, look, These guys are idiots. They don't know what they're doing. They're taking your money. Uh, They've never had to work hard for a dollar in their entire lives. They've never done a high level deal. They don't know what they're. They don't know anything. Uh, You might as well put me in charge. I've at least run a company, right? You know. And this was a very appealing argument to people. I mean, I, I. I think a lot of educated Americans don't really see that. But if you work in a small town in Nebraska and the only your only experience with authority is the guy who runs the local Walmart, um, you're going to look up to the business leader. You just will. And I I, I think you take you take that pitch mixed with all this evidence of, of incompetence. And it was it was really, really appealing to people.
0: Yeah. And we didn't, I mean, the Democrats didn't learn from it, clearly, because it was not <laughs> about wanting Trump. It was about not wanting Hillary. And here we are with Biden. <laughs> so, but you know, I still think that we are like an economic crash and, and a nuclear a- error away from, from a mass movement, right? I mean, it will just take one crisis like, th- like the one in 2008, but you know, stronger. And it's possible that, uh, you know, the people will wake up out of the stupor, basically, and, and, and act and take to the streets and stay on the streets. Um, uh, mm-hmm. which would be great. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is to stay on the streets.
1: <laughs> it it Not could go be back great. <laughs> it, it, it could be awful too. So it, yeah, you know, yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, personally it would be terrible, right? For, for each one of us, but. Uh, in the big picture of history,
1: um, yeah. if you want change, it's a good thing, but it, it, it could it could be very very messy um, when that happens. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. but yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Well, you know, and and so perhaps you know those the powers that be will will heed the warning uh, and and you know come up with programs of social like of of real social reprogramming updates you know that will change the system that would be amazing so yeah
1: well but the thing is the thing about that is is you know I wouldn't hold my breath for that yeah. because after 2008 which I covered you know I, I had to go out and talk to people all over the campaign trail and it was manifestly obvious that there was a a real crisis of confidence just in government in general, uh, all over the country. People did not believe their leaders. They voted for Trump because he was, quote unquote, not a politician. Right. And, and anybody who was paying even a modicum of attention um, should have understood. And Bernie Sanders understood this. I talked to him about this after the election. They should have understood the priority. Number one is we have to do better. Right. Like we, we have to stop promising people that their jobs are going to come back after NAFTA. We have to actually come up with some kind of plan that changes the fundamental situation for ordinary people. And instead of doing that, they continually put all their chips into these political gambits like Russiagate, like Ukraine Gate, like Bounty Gate. You know, now like uh, January 6th was done a little bit more out of necessity, I think. But still, uh, and Biden tonight is, you know, the big reveal in his speech is going to be he's going to identify the Republican Party as uh, an extreme threat. Uh, He's going to he's going to say things about MAGA Republicans being uh, prone to violence. And, you know, there's there's a danger there because. In the war on terror era, if you call somebody a terrorist, that has some pretty concrete meaning. Um, they can be put on watch lists. They can, you know, their, their bank records can be looked at. Uh, you can put, put them under surveillance. You can deny them travel rights. There's all kinds of things you can do once you classify somebody that way. Uh, and so that is another political gambit. I, apart from the forgiveness of the student loans they still haven't moved in the direction of oh my god we have to do something to help people which is the only way, their only way out of the situation both the democrats and the republicans that they they, they have to do something and yeah. they just they don't seem to get it and, and they're doing no. something else instead
0: no they're not going to do it i mean you know clinton ended the welfare system and that's it we have like these very clear blinders of like greed is good since you know the the era you were talking about you know and wall street is the economy and so we've gone way far into this this kind of like idea of you know money brings money and money is all there is right so i think that for me the only way to move forward is to also change, you know, fundamentally our consciousness uh, of what it is to be human and to kind of like monetize, demonetize humanity, you know, like separate love from money, you know, separate family from money, you know, separate, uh, trust from money, right? There is a lot of all of this work that I think, you know, will have to be done for, for us to evolve. Have you thought at all about this Armageddon, uh, you know, the, the, the QAnon, and before that, the Tea Party people, right? They have always been waiting. <laughs> They've always been waiting for it. And it's back again, you know, this talk of like the second coming with uh, the FBI raid. Uh, mm. the, the talk of, the, of, of Trump's second coming is back. And when he says, he said today, uh, he truthed today. <laughs> it really reminds me of Stephen Colbert's tr- truthing but he truth today uh that um you know the the only solution is for him to be reinstated as president mm. basically um so yeah this idea of like you know uh, the savior coming on the stallion and confronting the devil and his minions and you know then uh, the the savior opens his mouth and all the minions disappear and just the savior and the and satan and then you know, uh, Christ, you know, Christ or whoever Christ may be, um, opens his mouth and a gigantic sword comes out and destroys the, you know, Satan. And then you have a thousand years of peace and prosperity on earth. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that is when the second, sequ- the trial comes and everybody gets to choose. And the assumption is that, you know, having experienced a thousand years of peace and prosperity, everybody's going to be like, yeah, you know, I'm like, for the side that gave us that right so Mm -hmm. this narrative you know it's interesting because america is you know was built by people well like me you know who are believers in like a new world right A, a new way of doing things right that was not like the old world so so many have been you know evangelicals like whether it's the puritans or now the evangelicals it's the same idea of like really having a very potent and powerful faith and optimism in in the goodness right and and paying the price to make you know to make this a better a fair society and, and that 's the promise of, of of the american experiment like that 's the Bill of rights that was that revolution and there is one way of seeing it, which is not you know like the, maybe the, the the elite way of seeing it. Uh, which is that America has fought again and again against its worst instincts. Uh, You know, it's fought against, like, what it inherited, right? Because it inherited slavery. I mean, it was uh, was made by colonizing occupiers and it inherited the the horrors of, like, you know, what happened to the indigenous people. It inherited the, the slave owning that came from its founders even before the revolution. And, and, and it has also inherited this tendency for empire, mm. you know, uh, which became very strong with World War II, which is like, you know, the temptation to, like, rule the world, which, like, I understand. I mean, if, if you can be, like, on top of the jungle, pounding your chest and saying, I'm, like, the biggest power, I'm the biggest guy here, right? That's such a high. It's very hard to resist, to resist that temptation, but all of that's like we're old world, kind of like patriarchy, you know, sins and, and 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 you know and and oppressions that were inevitably you know bringing in, because we have inherited that, but it's not who we are. So how do we See, find? See, I, I don't who
1: know. I I, I I think that it, I think it is who we are. I I. I I would argue that um, the messianic component of the American character has always been with us. It was an essential part of the Puritan philosophy. I mean, I grew up not far from Plymouth, Massachusetts, you know, the heart of Puritan America, right? And the Puritans brought with them this idea that that they were building a shining city on the Hill, that they were going to be um, the leaders of a great movement that was going to spread enlightenment all over the world. And this has consistently been a part of the way America views its relationship to everybody else, you know, from, um, you know, from the Monroe doctrine and manifest destiny uh, through the League of Nations and Woodrow Wilson to World War II, when we essentially took over the role that the Britons had, um, as the world's dominant seafaring power and uh, controlling the trade routes, uh, to you know, the cur- the current incarnation. Well, I-, I skipped over Bush, uh, who overtly talked about, um, conquering the axis of evil uh, and spreading democracy. And uh, that we, we we formally have a program that we call democracy promotion everywhere. Um, And we're now in this place, which I think is very dangerous because uh, we're not taking on little countries like uh, Iraq or Iran um, or even North Korea anymore. Now, this idea of of uh, confronting autocracy, which is part of the new language, um, and spreading d- democracy everywhere, this is bringing us on a crash course with China and Russia, who are two incredibly powerful countries. China more so than Russia, but still, um, this is no joke. I mean, we we, we sent. A billion dollars in arms, or or about to send a billion more dollars in arms to Taiwan, at a moment where we've already embarked upon, uh, basically an open-ended, very expensive, very risky proxy campaign in Ukraine,
0: against Russia, so, against Russia, against,
1: right. against yeah. Russia. So the the possibility exists that you know a year from now we're go- we're going to be in a two front world war essentially. I think so. Uh, so. With with powers that um you know the, the Russians are not as powerful as we are but they 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 have the nuclear arsenal of course that we have to worry about but but China um this is i think Americans really have lost their ability to think rationally about how diplomacy works and how sometimes you have to make concessions to keep the peace and you know the same kinds of thinking that um Allowed us to maintain kind of a, a tenuous stasis for half a century after the world after World War II, um, we've lost that ability to think in those terms. We we have this messianic character to how uh, to how we think about problems like Russia and Ukraine and uh, and China and Taiwan and. That stuff terrifies me just because there's an illusion that there's somebody up there who's smarter, smarter than we all are thinking about this. But I don't think that's true. (laughs) I think it's just more people, more more of the same kinds of mediocrities we went to college with who are who are in positions of power. And I I don't I don't think they're up for the task personally.
0: Well, uh, so. If but it makes for great TV and great oh, yeah. ratings, and also it gets, it gets it makes for the best destruction tactics, right? It it throws sand in our eyes. So if we have a recession and if people are you know are getting uh, miserable and there is unrest, what best but to get into some sort of like world war, which now they think. Is gonna be fought with like drones, and so it's always gonna be popular because we're not gonna have warm bodies and on the ground in faraway countries, and we're only gonna be watching it like vicariously. But really, it's a win-win for the politicians because it's not real war. Uh, but you know, w- war in Europe with with nuclear, uh, w- with so many kind of like nuclear warheads involved, is very real. And uh, I think war with, with China would become very real and I agree with you it's very likely uh, next year to have a couple of serious wars uh, that feel not real because they're still outside our borders and we've never been invaded and we don't have that trauma. You know, like the rest of of us, I mean, you know, I'm Greek and, and the trauma of having been occupied, you know, has passed, has been passed down to me repeatedly by my parents that were alive in World War II, you know. So we, there is a lot of like memory of, of what it means. Um, and reflexive
1: resistance to the idea. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And therefore, um, yeah, a lot of, you know, like an inherent pacifism. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a desire to kind of like you know make peace because you know the the alternative is is so hor- horrid, um, it's suicidal uh, you know and yeah there is kind of like it's almost like you know in the sense like Trump has has had a suicidal impulse I think when he ran like we all said. I mean, he has so much to lose. There's so many dirty deals. Is he crazy to be running for president, right? And even now, there is this suicidal element of like, why is he bringing attention to the raid when, you know, I mean, so it's a similar thing with like America or, you know, the Pentagon. Uh, There is kind of that that sense of like, you know, tendency to self-harm. That's almost like the addict, you know, you're addicted to this like high of power, and and the addiction is self-harming, um, but if there is a couple of w- world wars, it's almost like global civil war. Like my country, for example, has transformed so much since 2010. You know, since the Greek debt, really. You know, all of mm. Europe has transformed since we all became, you know, German Germans.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> so right.
0: We we all used you know what used to be the mark, basically uh, the Deutsche Mark. <laughs> Um so and and I think that by bullying the world into becoming democratic, democracy is losing its sparkle because you can force it you know, can't force it into people. Like no one wants what, what they have no choice but to, to to take, right? So it's just not gonna be popular.
1: Also there there are there's a whole range of um Unintended uh, or unforeseen consequences that the average American doesn't think about, uh, but will suddenly become factors in their lives very quickly as this whole situation develops. Just this week, we are seeing, uh, we saw prices for American natural gas um, hit uh, highs they hadn't reached since 2008. They're going to continue to go up. Uh, so if you are one of those Americans or, uh, who uh, lives in a home that's heated by natural gas, and that's half of all Americans, um, you've seen, you're going to see your prices rise by 150% over the beginning of this year. And that's going to continue to go up, uh, because we're now having to export um, a greater and greater share of our natural gas to Europe, which is seeing price hikes that are far beyond what even we're experienced now that Russia has, has cut off natural gas uh, to um, you know from the Nord Stream One pipeline. So Germans aren't getting gas. Nobody's getting ga- the, the cheap energy they used to get. We're going to have to subsidize it, which means that the ordinary American energy consumer is suddenly going to have to pay more it's going to be lots and lots of things like that. Like people don't realize that stability is just a very delicate thing. You, you you can't just start messing with, uh, you sort of the fundamental structure of things on the one hand, you can blame Putin for this because he's the one who, who started, uh, the ball down this road, but, uh, we, we could have isolated the problem and decided not to. And, uh, and so I think we're going to end up paying quite, quite a heavy price for all this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I think a lot of this was just, we just came out of Afghanistan and this administration didn't want to show weakness. And, you know, it, it has kind of got out of their control. <laughs> I think well, every escalation, they think, okay, this is the last one and the war, you know, Ukraine will win, you know, their 31 year old uh, independence. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, and just quickly on that. The, when 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 the new incarnation of the Democratic Party started uh, in the mid '80s, this is the Clinton Democrats. When they when they eliminated the old version of the Democrats, there was a group called the Democratic Leadership Council that sort of reinvented what it, what the Democratic Party was. One of their foundational principles was never lose the weakness argument to Republicans again. Wow. Right, so so it it's imperative for them politically not to be seen as as the party that ends wars um and i I, I think you're right, I think like getting out of afghanistan they they looked around to see well, well what can we start you know um I don't wow. think that's unreasonable to consider and that's
0: how we ended up with like you know America bombing a a European city you know in in yugoslavia and right exactly, and, and then of course the destruction of Libya. From, you know, from which there has been like no, no revival. It's just getting worse and worse since. And these were democratic decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all the drone wars, you know, that Obama, all the drone strikes that Obama presided over. Um, well, it sounds like we're going into a time of reckoning. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very nervous time in American history. It's funny. I, I lived for 10 years in in Russia and the former Soviet Union. And I remember always thinking how how relieved I was to come from the United States. I loved Russia. Don't get me wrong. I, there There were so many things about living in that country that I thought were amazing. But just from a basic functionality level... We take for granted things like not having to pay bribes to a traffic cop. I mean, there, there are a million things about the American experience that are quite nice when you think about it, um, but we're starting to see some fraying at the edges of the American experience that are really, really scary. I mean, look, look, look at Jackson, Mississippi, having no drinking water this week. I mean, that would never have happened um, in the pretty recent past. Uh, So people are beginning to have doubts about what this country is all about. We're seeing an escalating number of people who are raising their kids to speak another language because they're anticipating having to leave someday um this is all new like we americans aren't used to this we're used to being number one and we're and we're used to being proud of it and this is an unpleasant feeling for all of us
0: yeah yeah i agree i agree this like buying uh you know visas and spending like two hundred and fifty thousand and becoming citizens of other countries it's also you know confusing and destabilizing and uh you know as as a New American, I think it's also heartbreaking.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, yeah. Even if you were embarrassed by other other aspects of American history, you know, it was always nice to be able to walk into a room of other nationalities and just be like, "Yeah, you know, we're the big dog," and uh, you know, in the world, and we're not really anymore. And I I, I saw this with Russians, by the way, after 1991. You know, they, uh, even people who hated the Soviet system got used to being met part of a massive superpower. Uh, and losing that as an element of their character was really catastrophic for a lot of people. Like, I, I think it took a long time for a lot of Russians to recover from that. And uh, I, I, that may start happening with us now.
0: How interesting. Yeah. And today was a Gorbachev's funeral.
1: And, yes, that's right. Putin yeah.
0: lay a wreath. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's actually, it's actually very interesting how, you know, how it can be like a psychic trauma, you know, for tens of millions of individuals to kind of lose that identity of, of being the chosen one.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, not not to interrupt, but I, I remember I had a friend in, in college, a Russian friend who couldn't stand the Soviet system ended up emigrating to America he lives in San Francisco now but i remember him looking at the soviet map uh after the revolution and saying man what a big beautiful country we used to be and you know it, it hurt him right it, it, it was a, it was a wound for somebody like him uh, I think that was very common for people to be really, really rattled by that. And uh, Americans are just—we're not used to using losing to other countries in basketball. We're not loose, used to all kinds of humiliations that we, we suffer pretty regularly now. So,
0: well, you remember we were supposed to be post-historical, <laughs> and everything had been <laughs> taken care of, right? We had won, and this was like a better world. And then, oopsie, nine eleven, and everything else. You know that that came from it, which reminds you that you know the ghosts of history are very much with us. And I think without like you know real radical change, we can't be that big in the world. You know, we're, we're not yeah. just getting in the in the mud with everybody uh, by by participating in all these you know in all these all these conflicts and proxy wars that we don't understand as Americans. You know what they're about. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Well, OK, so what are you working on now? Do you where is your focus these days?
1: Uh well, I'm working on a book about uh, it's really sort of like a version of Griftopia that is, is focused on the pandemic era. So it's ripoffs in the pandemic era. Um, and that's heavily focused on what happened to that four point six trillion dollars so, uh, doing that and otherwise just wow. writing a lot on, on Substack. So,
0: yes, yes, yes. Of course, I follow you on Substack and I am so impressed that you're there diligently and you can keep that up. It's extraordinary. I'm, I'm like, you know, the uh, guy's like a newspaper,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. no, it's yeah. tough. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 the Substack's been great for a lot of people, um, but this the format really requires you to hustle quite a lot so um, so but it's been fun it's yeah. been, it's been, it's been a, you guys you
0: get it down though you yeah <laughs> you can do it which is admirable i mean i admire you for so much you know and and mostly for for your uh, integrity, you know, for having oh, maintained you. your integrity through like decades. So thank <sighs> you. Thank you for being who you are and your voice. No, you know, of course.
1: Thank, this. You. thank you. Thank and you very thank much. Thank you for
0: coming on the show. It was a pleasure. And, um, you know, we, we made some we made some predictions for the next year or two. So Yeah, we'll let's, let's
1: check back in later and <laughs> yeah. uh, see, see if those turn out.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like love incessantly, I would be gone.